Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> Almost all of us, well, frankly, all of us, internalize these ideas of different racial groups and where we belong in this racial order at the level of the unconscious. At the same time, most of us are being raised by families that say racism is wrong. Racism is immoral and unjust. We all uh, share a basic humanity and deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. Hey, welcome, Faithful Politics listeners and viewers. If you're watching on our YouTube channel, I am your political host, Will Wright. And our faithful host, Josh Bertram, is actually out this week. Um, he's out there campaigning with Matt Gates at the Free Britney rally in California. Um, but joining us to continue our discussion on critical race theory is Ian Haney-Lopez. He uh, teaches in the area of race and constitutional law at UC Berkeley. He's one of the nation's leading thinkers on how racism has evolved since the civil rights era, and his current research emphasizes the connection between racial divisions and society and growing wealth inequality in the United States. He's written a ton of books, one of which is called Dog Whistle Politics, which we will get into here in this conversation, where he details the 50-year history of how politicians exploit racial pandering to fracture social solidarity and ultimately to convince many voters to support rule by the rich. And lastly, he was a principal researcher on the Race Class Narrative Project, which is a project to develop an empirically tested narrative on race and class that resonates with all working people and offers an alternative to and neutralizes the use of dog whistle racism. So thank you so much, Ian, for being here today. I'm very, uh, very happy to join you. Yeah. So we have a, we have a lot of, we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, and um, I'm going to start first by just asking you, um, you know, what, what is critical race theory? And like, what are some of the origins, you know, the history behind it? Sure. So let me start by saying, you know, I do critical race theory. I've done critical race theory my entire academic professional career. Uh, I was first exposed to it as a law student at Harvard in the late 80s and early 90s when I had the good fortune to study with Derek Bell directly. He's widely regarded as one of the founding figures. Um, it was a time of a lot of um, ferment, a lot of the a lot of the early critical race theory standout articles that had already been published. Um, so, what is critical race theory? I would say, you know, the uh, the best way to understand it is to to ask, well, what is economics? Economics is a rigorous study of how marketplaces work, and we all have some familiar with a marketplace. You know, we all have some money in our pockets. We all spend a little bit of money, but very few of us would say, well, you know, I went to the grocery store and bought bread, so I know all there is to know. I don't need, you know. <laughs> Likewise with race. If you think about race just, you know, a little bit, you realize, wow, racism is connected with colonialism. It's a story about different peoples, right? None, none of this is like biologically true. None, none of this is divinely ordained. In fact, humanity is spread across the globe, but 
something happens with the start of European colonialism. People in Europe begin telling stories about the other people they encounter. They tell stories about how they're inferior, how it's okay to take their land, how it's okay to enslave them. Those stories are race. And in, in turn, those racial ideas in, inform the founding of the country. They inform who gets what jobs, who lives where, who's admitted to what clubs, who's in power. In other words, you don't have to be all that sophisticated about race to realize, wow, this is a really powerful force. Maybe we should study it rigorously. That's critical race theory. Hmm. Right. That, that's a really interesting uh, uh, definition. Now, is there like a... Is, is there like a source document, you would say, you know, or a primary sort of like like a CRT manifesto, you know, that's that's used to, to understand um, critical race theory? There's no manifesto. N- not at all. I do think if you wanted to understand critical race theory, there's some great books that you could look at. There's one of them called Critical Race Theory, Key Writings That Form the Movement. Kim Crenshaw is one of the editors of that. That's simply a compilation of some of the early, really great articles on, uh, you know, the, the original articles. You get to actually engage directly with these articles rather than looking them up in law reviews, which is where they originally published. Another resource is um, written by one of my colleagues at Berkeley, Kiara Bridges. She's written a book and simply entitled Critical Race Theory, A Primer. It's issued by Foundation Press. They're one of the leading law school publishers. Um, It's designed for graduate students interested in critical race theory. I think the thing that I would emphasize there, and it's so relevant to the conversation about critical race theory today, is if you're looking at Crenshaw's book, you know, the key writings that form the movement, or Bridges' book, Critical Race Theory or Primer, you're really looking at scholarship that is written and geared towards a graduate student audience. This is a sophisticated, rigorous, complicated, nuanced endeavor to engage with a very powerful, um, uh, terrible social force. Part of what's happening today is there's, there's an effort to reduce it, to to sound bites to say, well, it's it teaches hate, or it's a dogma, or you know, it it, it has these three. Pr- it's like nonsense. That's not. Right? That's a complete misrepresentation of of critical race theory. Yeah, yeah, and and I and I think you're right because a lot of the a lot of the opponents of critical race theory um, that I've seen, you know, in the media and and by politicians and elsewhere, you know, there's. They say that, you know, critical race theory is anti-American. It's racist. It's, you know, name the, you know, soundbite, as you said. Um, so, so like, w- w- what would you say to somebody, you know, that said critical race theory teaches, you know, white people to hate themselves or something like that? So I think I'd say two things. And the first is far less important than the second. The first is nonsense. Right. And, and, but that's far less important. And the reason it's far less important is because if somebody says critical race theory teaches little white children to hate themselves and to hate their friends, that's a lie. And the people saying that they're either liars or fools. And very few of them are fools. So now 
should I just respond to the lie? Should I just debate the lie? Should I be like, well, what's your source? Because, you know, I can come up with all these sources. And, and everybody understands, you, you know, when, when somebody's lying, it's very hard to, to disprove it. You know, they're like, we well, prove, prove to me that no critical race theorist ever, you know, didn't say that. <laughs> Stop, right. Mm-hmm. The more important thing, the more important response, and I, and I, and I hope where a lot of the media coverage goes, is towards a different conversation, which is, why are some people systematically lying about critical race theory? Why are they doing that? Where is that coming from? Why is there so much support for it? And, you know, and, and people might say to themselves, wow, I'd never heard about critical race theory even a year ago. And then this guy gets on and talks about it on Tucker Carlson. And within a month, the, the president has passed an executive order saying that critical race theory is on par with fascism and Marxism as an existential threat to the country? Is that even believable? That something you never heard of a year ago is now as big as world <laughs> communism in threatening to destroy the country? You've never heard of it? No more, you've heard of it since. Fox News is talking about it constantly. Why? And this is what I call dog whistle politics. And I want to I'll talk a little bit about dog whistle politics, but also say when I talk about dog whistle politics, you're listening to me as a critical race theorist, mm-hmm. as somebody who's saying, how does race actually work in our society? Um, and the more you ask that question, the more you're pushed beyond simplistic understandings of racism. Like we're encouraged to think, well, racism is one person mistreating another person usually because they hate that other person's race and um, clear evidence that a person is a racist is if they use a racial swear word like the N word or, you know, calling somebody whitey or, you know, words like that, that that's the racist, but otherwise race isn't really operating in our society. No race is operating in all sorts of ways, just like the economy is operating in all sorts of ways. Even if you aren't immediately handing somebody a dollar, Handing somebody a dollar, clearly economics, calling somebody the N-word, clearly race. <laughs> but that's not the sum total of it, right? It's There's these other mm-hmm. dynamics. Well, what has happened in our country since the civil rights movement? Since the civil rights movement, the Republican Party made a purposeful strategic decision, and we can pinpoint this decision to 1962, Barry Goldwater, um, thinking about how to pull apart the Democratic coalition. Well, who is in the Democratic coalition? Working class whites, African Americans, and coastal liberals who all supported the idea that government should work for the vast majority of Americans. We call that the New Deal consensus. Um, the government should work for the vast majority of Americans. And Barry Goldwater said, well, if that's our coalition, how do we get some of those folks over to the Republican Party, the party of big business. And Goldwater said, wow, look at what's happening in the South. People in the South are agitated by civil rights. They're, they're white Democrats in the South are distressed by racial integration being promoted at the national level. Maybe I could use racial appeals. It's a very purposeful, clearly expressed decision. He actually says, let's go hunting where the ducks are. And where are the ducks? Southern whites. Ever since then, we've had a politics that uses racial rhetoric 
but it's a post-civil rights racial rhetoric. And by that, I mean, it's not a rhetoric that appeals to people on the basis of race by being plain spoken. There are very few politicians, there are some, but very few who stand up and say, hi, Caucasian race, I'm here to represent you. Right. <laughs> right. Now, now, you know, the, um, um, there's one guy, a former Klan member in Louisiana who, who actually said that, right? I'm here to represent <laughs> Caucasian Americans. And he lost very, very badly. Instead, what the Republicans did, and Democrats have followed to a certain extent, is they innovated a language designed to trigger racist fears, but also designed to allow people who are worried about race to reassure themselves they're not racist. So Nixon, Richard Nixon, for example, started talking about law and order and crime. And and you can just, sure, on one level, law and order and crime has nothing to do with race, but on another it triggered the sense of violence and disruption of, and threat that is closely associated with racist stereotypes. Or Richard Nixon would talk about forced busing, that no family should be, should be compelled to endure forced busing. What did he mean? Well, on one level, it just means you shouldn't be required to put your child on a school bus. But Americans had been doing that for decades. What it really triggered was a sense that people's white children, white people's children were being put on buses and taken into black neighborhoods and black children were being put on buses and brought into white neighborhoods to integrate the schools. So parents could object to busing, reassure themselves that what they were objecting to was federal coercion when what was in fact animating most of their agitation was integration. That's what we're, that's dog whistle politics. That's the use of race in a coded form that, that is designed to trigger deeply internalized racist fears and resentment. But to allow people to say to themselves, ah, there's no, there's no racial element here. Critical race theory is part of that practice. It's a way to create a fear in among many whites that those of us who are arguing for racial justice are in fact animated by anti-white racism, that Mm. racial equality and racial integration is in fact designed as revenge politics. We're coming, we're going to take something away from white folks, we're going to do to white folks what historically white folks did to people of color, right? That's the fear. And it's a deeply internalized fear but it's also one that's constantly being promoted by some of the leading spokespeople on the right. I think Tucker Carlson, I think Rush Limbaugh used to say this. He used to say all the time, they're coming for you. This is revenge politics. Now, again, I would say, you got to be kidding me. We're all people. When somebody says, if you say, hey, I want to be treated fairly, you don't mean I hate you and I want to take everything that's yours. You're just mm-hmm. saying, I want to be treated fairly. I want to be seen as a full and dignified human being. Right? But, but, but this is the politics. To trigger in people a fear that those of us arguing for racial justice are animated by a racist hatred of white people. But then to turn around and use language in which the people who have that fear can tell themselves, Oh, I'm not worried as a white person. 
I'm not worried about minorities coming to get me. I'm really against racism. And that's why I'm objecting to critical race theory, because they're the racist. They're peddling Mm -hmm. hatred. I'm not responding to resentment or fear or stereotypes. I'm actually the one who's righteous and who's against racism. And these folks, and this is, you know, for me, one of the ironies, I spent my whole life, my entire life thinking about and working against racism. And now you get these folks who have no track record whatsoever of doing anything to promote a racially egalitarian integrated society. And they come out and say, oh, you know, that Ian Haney Lopez guy, he's a racist. I'm like, come on. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. <laughs> you, you, you know, which which you did touch on it a little bit, and, and I know that for any of our listeners listening to this and they're thinking to themselves, you know, well, I'm I'm white and I don't have a racist bone in my body, you know, and, and just, just for me personally, I mean, my, my wife is white and she's like the most caring, loving person I know, you know, and I I would think her marrying a black guy is kind of proof that she's not racist, (laughs) you know, Uh, instead of just having the one black friend, she's got the one black husband, you know? Um, So like, so what, what would you, what would you say to that person listening to this saying, you know, everything you're saying kind of makes sense, except, you know, you know, grouping kind of all whites broadly and in this sort of like group of being, you know, part of the, part of the problem, so to speak. Oh, I think that's such a great question. Listen, one of the scary things about race, but also one of the good things about race is that we all operate with split minds, or, or I should say more generally, we all operate with split minds, including around race. Like one of the things we know from psychology is that we have a conscious mind um, in which we're thinking about the world around us. We're thinking about our actions. We're thinking about our values. um, We're goal directed. And we have an unconscious mind, which is actually doing a lot of processing to make our daily lives more efficient, right? So if you think about like all your normal routines and the way you dress, um, the, the routes you take, your unconscious mind is doing a lot of that for you. So you don't have to spend a lot of time every morning saying, you know, do I dress as a goth or am I more country Western in the way I dress? How, how is that? How, what should I do today? <laughs> right? Like there's, we get into these routines, these habits, our unconscious minds process those. Okay, well, we know that our unconscious minds are really good at pushing us to think about people like us and people who are different from us. 
people who are in our group and people who are outside of our group. And I want to just pause for one second here to say, I am absolutely not saying we are hardwired naturally to think in terms of race. And I'll get back to that in a second. What we are hardwired to do is to think about in groups and out groups. And we like and trust in groups and we distrust and fear out groups. And and you can kind of understand this from an evolutionary point of view. Mm -hmm. Who's a threat? Who's safe? Right. And, And that's the sort of thing that your mind is going to try and help you figure out very, very quickly. Okay. And, and, and so social psychologists have done some just mind blowing experiments where they'll take a group of, let's say fourth graders and they'll have them count off one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two in their class. Right. So now you have a group of ones. Now you have a group of twos. They all know each other. They're in the same class. They all see how random the division is, but then you put ones on one side of the room twos on the other side of the room and you start talking to them and the ones start trash talking the twos and they start talking about how great the ones are and the twos do the flip. That's what I mean by in-group, out-group, right? That is hardwired. We do that all the time. Our unconscious minds really push us in that direction. Just to stop you there for a second, is is that similar to a lot of the work that like Henry Tajfeld did um, on like identity? Because I know that he did a lot of experiments some really awesome experiments about you know self-identity and he did something similar to what you're just talking about so so that's the starting point and then the question becomes well if it's not the one two what are the social cues that children are receiving about the relevant social groups and that's where race comes in because if you've organized, so, so if you think about an infant, who's on the, who's in the in-group, people they're familiar with, right? Like people they're exposed to repeatedly. And if they're really raised in, you know, a completely multiracial setting, they're used to the fact that humans come in lots of different forms and lots of different skin colors, lots of different body types, different genders. Okay. But if they're not, Children develop a sense of like, this is my group. This is what they look like. I've never seen a person who looks like that before. And that's just one layer of cues. And there's all the other, like, you know, if the kid is sitting in front of a television and watching like who's represented in what different positions, all sorts of social cues. What happens is almost all of us, well, frankly, all of us internalize these ideas of different racial groups and where we belong in this racial order at the level of the unconscious. At the same time, most of us are being raised by families that say racism is wrong. Racism is immoral and unjust. We all uh, share a basic humanity and deserve to be treated with respect and dignity, right? And so now we have a conflict between our conscious minds, our conscious ideals, and our unconscious minds, um, which still bubble up with all of these stereotypes about what different groups are like. The point here, and I want to really emphasize this, the point here is not we're doomed to be racist or we're naturally racist or we're inevitably racist. And I think that's a a lot of the way in which critical race theory has been misrepresented. The point rather is, if you're raised in a society that emphasizes racial difference 
Or likewise, if you're raised in a society that emphasizes gender differences, then you've got a lot of internalized ideas percolating in your unconscious mind, even if some of those ideas, even if most of those ideas are in tension with the values that you hold consciously. And the point there is to say, okay, fantastic. Then hold on to your conscious values and use those to try and correct your unconscious biases and prejudices whenever they bubble up. And, and to just be honest about it. So if somebody says to me, as, as, as liberals do and conservatives do, this isn't a right-left thing. If somebody says to me, I never think about race. What I know right away is this is a person who hasn't done much work to try and figure out how to correct the sorts of stereotypes that keep bubbling up. And I know they do because, you know, I'm raised in the society. I know what those stereotypes are. They bubble up for me, you know, and the stereotypes are, um, do you feel a sense of threat when all of a sudden you're surrounded by people who don't look like you? That's your unconscious mind say, setting off alarms. You just got to be honest about that and say, oh, shoot, you know, just about everybody in the society is dealing with that sort of nonsense. Mm. But luckily, almost everybody in this society also believes racism's wrong. I believe racism's wrong. Let me try and make an effort to get to know these folks. Let, let me go and talk to these folks. Let me smile at the person who my unconscious mind is telling me is a threat to me. Because maybe mm -hmm. smiling will work. And maybe, <laughs> maybe my unconscious mind, unconscious mind is just wrong and it's taking me in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. you, you know, what's interesting about that is, so I'm former military, I deployed overseas to the Middle East. Um, when I got back from Iraq back in 2004, um, I noticed a sense of, of racism in myself towards people that were of Middle Eastern descent. And I'm, you know, I'm originating from Southern California. It's like a melting pot of diversity somewhat. And, you know, I've been around folks of all kinds of ethnicities my entire life and never had a you know never felt like i had a racist bone in my body but like when i got back to my rack i i felt like i did it's like i didn't want to talk to people <laughs> you know i didn't want to hang around because in my subconsciously i like i i knew what was going on i knew that i was just thinking i've been in this war environment for like a year every person of middle eastern descent you know i was led to believe was out to kill me which in some cases was the case you know, so I come back to America and I'm like projecting that on the on the people, you know, that are that are around me. So like, is is that is that kind of like a similar, um, you know, scenario that, that you're that you're talking about? Completely similar, completely similar. And I think that the I, I also like the way you responded to it. You know, one way you can respond to internalized racism is to deny that it exists. But that actually gives it more power over you because you're kind of you're 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 pretending your mind, and it's not just your mind. Um, um, it, 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 when your unconscious mind tells you you're under threat, it triggers a whole host of physiological reactions, including surges of adrenaline. Right, so your mind and your body are screaming to you, you are under threat. It's a very intense experience. Now, if you respond to that by saying this isn't about racism, I'm not racist at all, then 
the the reality you're left with is I'm really under threat. It's like no, you're not. But but here's this other thing that I want to add, and I think that this is very important. We can talk about racial fear in the American population and the way in which we've got such a long legacy of racism and and group mistreatment that we've internalized these stereotypes, but most of us are committed to not being racist, that most of us are committed to the ideal of treating each other like humans. And this is an important conversation, but it's also a limited conversation because what it does is it leaves the question of, of racism kind of at the grassroots level, like organic, just what's happening among us as individuals. That misunderstands what's happened to us as a society for the last 60 years. And I want to pick that back up because this is what's really scary. Why do we have so much racial conflict now, 60 years after Martin Luther King's March on Washington? Uh, Right, 60 years after the civil rights movement, 60 years after um, you have this national commitment to end racism, to create an integrated society. Why? It is not because... Americans as a people couldn't let go of the racism, couldn't stop fighting and fearing each other. It's because some of the most powerful forces in our society have been intentionally encouraging us to be racist toward each other. Now, they've been doing so using coded language. They're not saying blatantly, you should hate black people, you should hate brown people, you should hate Muslims, you should hate white people. Instead, they're saying things like forced busing, law and order, criminals, gangbangers, rapists, welfare queens, illegal aliens, terrorists, right? They are like all of these words. And, and, I, and I'd, I'd actually say to your audience, close your eyes for a moment and just pay attention to the mental image that comes to mind. And I'm going to just say a, a, a series of words. Welfare queen. Gangbanger, criminals, illegal aliens, the heartland, patriots, makers, not takers, true Americans. Now, I think for almost all of us, those words conjure mental images that come in racial colors. At the same time, on the surface, I didn't use a single race word, not a single one. This is the political rhetoric that is being used by our leadership class, especially among Republicans, though not exclusively. I would single out in particular, if we're going to point the finger at one Democrat, I would single out in particular Bill Clinton. Clinton understood that that Republicans were winning by using, right, he, he had just seen uh, George Bush used Willie Horton, this um, um, African-American criminal, as a major campaign theme. And he's like, I know race is being weaponized. I'm going to do the same. So Bill Clinton ran by saying, I'm a new Democrat. I'm going to end welfare as a way of life and crack down on crime. And again, you might say to Bill, well, exactly whose way of life is welfare? Exactly who are the criminals, right? Like he understood the racial connotations mm-hmm. of that language. But again, mainly this has been a Republican strategy. They've been using this language to encourage us 
to fear and resent our neighbors. And it's not just them. It's the major think tanks, Heritage Foundation and Manhattan Institute right now have on their websites. And these are big think tanks funded by dark money, funded by billionaires. Their main purpose is to encourage lightly regulated capitalism, right? That, That is low taxes for the very wealthy, low regulations on corporations, very few environmental regulations, no labor protection. Um, that's what these, that's what these websites mainly promote. But they also right now on their websites have lies about critical race theory. And again, these are smart folks. They know their lies. You know, one of them, Heritage Foundation has on its website something about like, don't let K through 12 teachers teach your children critical race theory hate. Nobody is teaching critical race theory at the K through 12 level. It's a graduate school level analysis. That's just not happening. And they know it. What what are they doing? They are encouraging people to fear and resent their neighbors while actually supporting a bunch of policies that are good for the very wealthiest in society, but not for the rest of us. Right. And so mm-hmm. and this I think is just incredibly important. Yes. Levels of racial conflict are incredibly high right now. No, this is not because we are naturally inclined to hate and fear each other. We are being actively encouraged to fear each other. And by whom? By some of society's wealthiest, most powerful elements, because they benefit. When we're too distracted by the supposed threat posed by our neighbors, We can't come together and stand up to the dark money that is pushing policies that are good for the one-tenth of one percent, that are good for the biggest corporations, for big pharma, for the petrochemical industries. We can't stand up to them because we're too busy punching down at undocumented immigrants or at Muslims um, or at our black neighbors. Hmm. Now, now the... um... I want to get into a little bit about the race class academy and the race class narrative project, um, and 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 first tell our viewers that you're 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 probably the the first guest we've ever had that's given me homework before, um, like the interview, which I'm glad you did because I, I had no idea um, it was out there. And and on your website, there's a thing that our viewers and I'll put a I'll put a link to it in our show notes um, for the race class academy. So so. So let, let's let's start there. What what is the Race Class Academy? So what I'm the Race Class Academy is a way I like it. The no, Race Class Academy is homework. It is <laughs> it is a it is a course that people can take at their own pace that goes through the set of ideas I've just been talking about, but slowly building block by building block with a bit more evidence. There's a lot more evidence in a couple of books I've written, but I really wanted to give people a way to walk through these arguments slowly and at their own pace in a way I think that can really help people make sense of what's happened to them and to their families and to their communities and to to our democracy. I've done a bunch of focus groups. You know, yes, I'm I'm an academic. I'm a chaired professor at, at at Berkeley. I spend most of my time, or I spent most of my time talking to graduate level faculty and students. But about 
six years ago, seven years ago now, I really realized that I needed to get out and talk to regular folks to try and explain to regular folks, to try and translate critical race theory ideas into accessible language. Because I think that there's these ideas that I'm talking about, I think, can help save all of our families, whether we're black or brown or Muslim or what or white. These ideas are good for democracy. And I really wanted to try and translate them into, into language that regular folks use. And as I started talking to regular folks, what I realized is that people are pretty bright. They see very clearly a couple of terrible dynamics. One is incredibly high levels of racial conflict, higher than most people have ever experienced in their lifetimes. And the other is incredible economic unfairness. They might not know the specific numbers. They might not know, for example, that the top 1% has more wealth than the bottom 90%. They might not know that number. But they know that good union jobs are gone, that pensions are gone, that housing is unaffordable, um, that they're under incredible financial stress, right? They, they know that. What I'm trying to do is connect those two. And what I say to people is, listen, those two high levels of racial conflict, high levels of wealth inequality and the rich really controlling most of the wealth of this society, those aren't independent. Those are causally connected. What the party of big business has been doing for 60 years is it's been saying to folks, fear those other people of different races. We got your back. We'll protect you from those bad, threatening, undeserving but meanwhile, when in power, they enact policies that are really only good for the one-tenth of one percent. And, and, and I actually think Josh is, is really sad that he's not here to contest this, but he's not. So <laughs> I'll get this in uncontested. Donald Trump campaigned on themes of racial resentment. You know, build a wall. Mexicans are rapists. Um, who are these black protesters here? Somebody punching them out, right? Like, you know, telling the police, hey, you know, brutality against black people that you arrest. Don't, you know, don't don't put your hand on on their head. Don't protect them. Go ahead and be rough. Mistreat them. What did he actually do as policy? Pass the lad, largest tax cut in the history of this country for the top one percent and for and for corporations. Trillions in tax cuts for the very rich that he partially disguised by raising taxes on working and middle-class people. So here he is campaigning by saying to his, to his base, to his supporters, black and brown people threaten you. They're the real danger in your life. And then governing by saying, and here's trillions for the billionaire class. That's what's happening to us. And when I started saying that to folks in 2015, 2016, People got it. People can, people said to themselves, Oh, divide and conquer. I understand divide and conquer. I've seen it in my family. I've seen it in my church. I've seen it in my workplace. I just didn't know that this was playing out at the national level, but that's what's happening to us. That's race class academy. 
it, 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 it tells a story. It says, here's when this starts, 1962, Barry Goldwater. Here's how it's picked up. Here are the consequences of it, both the economic consequences and the racial consequences of it. But then it goes further because I didn't want to just stop and just tell people, here's what's happening. I wanted to try and figure out how we could fight back how we could connect to each other and defend ourselves uh, against intentional efforts to divide us, to get us back to a place where we really do believe in each other and believe the government should help build a big, broad, healthy, robust middle class. And that's where Race Class Academy ends, because I did a bunch of research that shows we can get there. Mm -hmm. And the key to getting there is to recognize that racism is a threat in all of our lives, even in the lives of, of white people. And actually, let me just, let me say this a little bit more clearly, because a lot of what the right is saying is white people are threatened by racism, racism against white people. That's a lot of hooey. There's, you know, yeah, you can find some wackadoodles who will <laughs> say anti-white things, but they're wackadoodles. Yeah. They're totally at the margin. There is no big wave of anti-white racism. That's a terrible lie. What there is, is a big wave of manufactured and promoted anti-black racism. And it's anti-black racism that is the single greatest threat in the lives of most white folks. I'm going to say that again, because most people don't think about it this way. The manufactured, promoted anti-black racism that comes from a lot of folks on the right is the single biggest threat in the lives of most white families. In what way is it a threat to white families? Because when enough white folks are stampeded by anti-black racism, are, are made fearful by it, believe it, right, fall for the lie, they give their political support for pol to politicians who discourage them from wearing masks and tell them don't get a vaccine, who support the billionaire class, who support the petrochemical industry and won't do anything to avert climate collapse. Right, have you, right now, and I, I want to be super clear about this, who's hurt especially badly by anti-black racism? Black people. They're hurt way worse. I am not saying anti-black racism hurts us all in the same way. You know, what does anti-black racism of the sort promoted by politicians look like for the black community? Over-policing, mass incarceration, Derek Chauvin slowly murdering George Floyd. It's way worse. And yet I want to say the single biggest threat in the lives of all of us, whether we're Latino or white or Asian American or African American, the single biggest threat is the lie that people of color and especially black people are dangerous and undeserving. Because when we organize our social identities and our political identities around that lie, we empower politicians who are mainly working for the one-tenth of one percent. And what do the one-tenth of one percent want? As much wealth and power as possible. And where does that mm -hmm. come from? It comes from all the rest of us. You know, I think about, I can't, I can't help but think about Texas. So, so, so Texas, you know, a deregulated uh, uh, energy infrastructure that produced billions in profit for the energy sector, 
but couldn't keep people from, you know, either dying of heat in the heat waves or freezing to death in the cold snaps. Now, a year later would be a really good time for the Texas legislature to do something about their energy infrastructure. But instead of doing that, instead of taking care of Texans, what they're doing is they're passing statutes that attack critical race theory and also trying to disenfranchise poor and black and brown voters. That is, Mm. this is a leadership, a, a leadership in the state of Texas that is encouraging Texans to fear and fight and try and strip power from each other. While as a leadership class, they work for the billionaires they're, who, who partly are profiting from an energy sector that is killing Texans for profit. Mm, that's so so weird. Now, now I'm going to go back to the dog whistle politics um, that you were talking about earlier. Um, like part of the race class narrative project, um, you guys did a whole bunch of like surveys and polling and and whatnot and and i'd love to kind of have you talk a little bit about that process and and what are some of the the key findings um because i think a lot of a lot of the points you're making um um, now are are probably based off of a lot of those findings and i and i would love to kind of just get your your explanation of that so we started with focus groups and this was just such an eye-opening experience for me as an academic um you know, because I was used to talking in language of systemic racism and, you know, there's, you know, implicit bias and all of these terms. But, you know, honestly, most folks don't know this vocabulary. They, they don't understand these concepts. Um, but what I did find is that um, in these focus groups, people really understood the idea that we're in racial conflict, but also want a society in which we're equally respected and seen as, as, uh, you know, as imbued with dignity. So that at first I was like, oh my gosh, you know, you know, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But then I was like, people get what's most important. What's most important is our shared humanity. And they also got very quickly divide and conquer. We're going to be, we're being intentionally divided. Here's one thing though, that that was a, that was a really um, another big revelation for me from from the focus groups. It wasn't enough for for me and my fellow researchers. And and by the way, let me let me particularly invoke Heather McGee, who right now has a, a bestseller out called "The Sum of Us," which I, I love. Um, uh, so Heather was a researcher with me on this. Um, the Sum of Us really talks about the way in which anti-black racism, how much anti-black racism has cost the white community. So if, if you really, if you if you, if you want to key in on that, I, I can't recommend the sum of us strongly enough. But one of the things we didn't realize is that if we, if we walk into a group and say, hey, they're trying to divide us, most people are so sick of the division that they just turned around and said, well, they say bad things about you. Now you're saying bad things about them a pox on both you, right? Mm -hmm. So it turned out that what people really wanted to hear, which is actually something we genuinely believe in, which is we want to come together. We want to build connections across these lines of division so that we can take care of our families and our neighbors' families too. 
Um, and again, this was something that, you know, I was, you know, as an academic, I'm mainly trained as a critic, right? Like how to, how to parse, how to analyze, how to take things apart. So it was really in some ways uplifting and, and energizing for me to, to talk with regular folks and, 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 and hear back from them. We want to build, we want to create, we want to heal. And so that's, that's part of what we did with the message. So the, the, the message really that, that, that resonates most powerfully with Americans is a message that says, we're all in this together, no matter what we look like or where we come from, right? Like it's, and, and notice the way it's race conscious from the very beginning. We're not going to hide from race. We're going to talk about it. And we're, and we're going to center it in a way that's true to our conscious minds, our ideals, that we're in this together. It doesn't, we're just trying to do the best we can by our families. And you can be black or brown or white. You can be fifth generation or a newcomer. You can be Muslim or Christian. It doesn't matter. We know that almost all of us here are trying to do the best we can by our kids, by our communities. So that's the first point we make. Then the second point is, but some people are trying to divide us. They're trying to say we should fear this group or fear that race. And when they do, then we don't, we don't see clearly the way they're rigging the rules for their dark money funders. We don't see clearly. We don't have enough power to stand up to the, the things they do to make sure the economy works for the wealthy and not for the rest of us. That's the second point. And that's, that's where we say to people, we know there's a lot of divisive rhetoric out there. Look behind it. That's such an important point. Look behind it. Look behind the rhetoric. Don't just debate the lie. Are those people dangerous or not? Ask yourself, why are they always telling me those people are dangerous? Look behind the lie for the motive. And then the third thing we say, and this is the third part of the message is, come together, especially across those lines we are being told divide us, especially across those lines. Extend your arm. Reach out. Shake hands with those people. Sit down for a meal with those people. Because together, we can build enough power so that we can take care of your family and their family as well. We can take care of all of us, right? And this, so this basic structure, we're all in this together, no matter our color, no matter what we look like. Some people are trying to divide us. And when they succeed, they rig the rules for the very rich. When we come together, we can reject that division and build power with each other and take care of our families and build a society in which we can all thrive. That's what the American people want to hear. And, and I, and, and I, and, and I want to be really clear about this. Why do they want to hear it? Because it's true. Because it's true both to what's happening to us that, ke- that keeps us apart. And it's also true to our highest values and aspirations, to what we know and believe in our hearts. Hmm. That, that, that's really good. You know, so, so how do you, I mean, how do you, how do you broach the subject of everything that you've talked about, you know, with, with lay persons that might, you know, not know anything about, you know, critical race theory or, or anything like that, you know, and, and I'll like, like from, from my, my Christian background. So I'm a believer um, you know, some would say I'm an, I'm an evangelical. I don't really know how true that is, but, but it's like, if I, if I were to talk to people about my faith, 
like it's not i'm not just going to go up to somebody and be like you need to believe or you die you know like like generally there's like a building of a relationship and then they sort of see the effect it's had on my life and then you know i kind of just hope that they would just ask me questions you know because <laughs> that takes all the work off me you know but um but but like how would you how would you broach you know the topic of of this to you know say uh, an avid fox news watcher great question let me answer on a couple of different levels one in terms of a sort of a, a breakdown of the american political population and then the other in terms of conversations so when we started doing this work, one of the things we did is we surveyed um, thousands of voters about their views. And we broke them down into sort of um, what we call opposition and what we call base. But you can think about it as like right or left. Um, this is not the same thing as Republican or Democrat or conservative or liberal. We were asking a specific set of questions because. Um, What's been happening is what I call the right, the, the sort of Barry Goldwater, you know, want government to work for the rich kind of folks. They've been telling a coherent story. And what is their coherent story? Their coherent story says the main danger in society comes from black and brown people. Fear them, A. B, hate government and hate liberals because they racially betray white people by supporting black and brown people, either because they're promoting racial integration or promoting affirmative action or promoting civil rights or giving them welfare or leaving the borders open, whatever it is. Fear and resent people of color hate government. And then see since you can't trust your neighbors and you've been betrayed by government, you're basically on your own. Buy a gun, do the best you can in the marketplace. Trust those who succeed in the marketplace. Trust the job creators, right? It's a, it's a, it's a coherent story. Fear and send people of color, hate government, you're on your own, trust the marketplace, okay? So we asked people a series of questions about their ideas and about 18% of Americans agree with all sorts, all three of those elements. Don't like people of color, hate government, think that um, uh, the marketplace is the only place where you can really succeed and that the rich are awesome and have succeeded in the marketplace because they're just more awesome than the rest of us. That's 18%. They are steeped in a, co a coherent worldview I think it'd be really, really hard to move those folks, right? It's very hard to reach them. Now, there's this other set of folks who are about 22%, so more or less the same, slightly larger, but more or less the same. Each of them are about one-fifth of the American population who feel warmly towards people of color, who believe government should regulate the marketplace and should create routes of upward mobility, and who worry that the marketplace has less to do with the success in the marketplace has less to do with how hard you're working and more to do with uh, how the system is structured, right? So these are folks who say, man, a lot of us are working 60, 70 hours a week. 
And the vast majority of those folks can barely afford food and shelter. So don't don't tell me that the people who are rich are rich because they're they're more awesome, that they work harder. We know the vast majority of us are working two, three jobs, but we're not getting ahead. There's something wrong with how this is structured. Okay, so th- this too is a coherent worldview. It's like we feel warmly towards our fellows, including people of color, really think government should work for the broad middle class, worry that the marketplace is structured so that those who get ahead, it doesn't really reflect how hard you're working, and it should. Okay. That's, so you got one fifth and one fifth. That leaves about three in five people in this conflicted middle. And what's important to recognize about the conflicted middle is they're not centrist in the sense of considered both sides and have arrived at a um, thoughtful, nuanced middle position. Not at all. The conflicted middle are people who bounce back and forth. You know, in, in one moment, they'll say, um, you know, it drives me crazy the way welfare queens get stuff for free. And the very next breath, they'll say something like, but you know, nobody should go hungry in this country. And if government is going to tax me to make sure that children are fed, I'm glad to pay those taxes, right? Now, these are two very different statements, okay? That's the conflicted middle. Those are the folks that we can talk to. If somebody's way over here in the, I don't like people of color, I hate government, the rich are just more awesome than the rest of us. Okay, we're, you're not making progress with them. They're just too steeped in this other worldview. Mm-hmm. But that's 60%, they are available. Now, let me switch to the second level. You're so right to highlight the importance of just talking to people, right? They just just engaging in a conversation. And in fact, um, more and more you're seeing groups adopt talking to each other as political strategy. Um, um, there's a group called uh, Down Home North Carolina that I had the honor to work with, um, down home North Carolina is trying to organize people in rural North Carolina. Now it's majority white, um, though, you know, Latinos and African Americans as well. What's their organizing strategy? Go door to door, knock on people's door and say, hi, I'm your neighbor. What are you interested in? What, you know, what, what are you worried about? Oh, healthcare? Me too. Oh, you know, um, uh, you think that uh, healthcare is 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 not available because there's too many illegals clogging the system? Do you know anybody from a different country? Have you ever actually seen that? You know, I know what it's like to not get healthcare. It's frustrating. It's scary. Have you experienced that? I wonder if it's you know just have mm-hmm. conversations, and it's really really effective. Um, the other thing I'd say about down home North Carolina in these conversations is and one of the one of their one of their organizers said this to me and it just it just blew me away but I think he's so right the most radical thing he was doing was actually knocking on his neighbor's doors and asking him to come to the front door and talk to him and and, and at first I was like well that's just being social but then I realized actually he said this to me he said, this is a foolish statement. He said, the most radical thing I'm doing is knocking on people's doors and asking them to come to the front door and talk to me. But sometimes Fox News is just playing too loudly in the living room. And he actually meant that as a, as a, as a metaphor, like literally true, like they can't hear the knocking, but also metaphorically, because 
what the message from Fox News is, you better bar your door. You better buy a gun. Your neighbors are a threat to you, especially if you don't know them, if they're unfamiliar, if they look different. Fear your neighbor. Don't answer that door. And, and what he was saying is, answer the door. That is radical in today's America. Mm. Rebuild mm. our sense of neighborhood. Expand our sense of community, especially with people who you don't know or who look different from you. Right. And, and so this was, this I think is one of the, one of the, the power of just talking to each other and really making an effort to talk to people who you've been told threaten you. Because mm. you just mm. might find out they're not a threat at all. They're, they're in this with you, trying to take care of their families, trying to do the best they can. Wow, that, that that's intense. So, so my 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 last question is: I, I asked this of Daniel uh, when we spoke about, you know, is it is it a good thing or bad thing that CRT is in the news lately? You know, and he he kind of joked. He's like, if you had told me five years ago that it would be sort of like in the in the public discourse, you know, yeah, he would have called me a liar. Um, and I and I'm curious on like, like like how does this how does this all end in the sense of you know, we got a lot of misinformation about what critical race theory is. Um, it it will probably keep playing well past the midterms, well past you know the presidential election. But like, like how, how does it how does it end with regards to I don't know your profession, your career, the public's knowledge about it, you know, and and what impact, if any, will it have in like our textbooks, you know, moving forward. I, I think I'm less worried about that 10 or 20 years, you know, medium term and more worried about the, the, the short term. We as a society are on the knife's edge of losing our democracy. And we're losing it. We're at risk of losing it. Because the Republican Party has become radicalized in a way that the Republican Party never intended. They didn't see it coming. But they unleashed a monster that they could not control. And we just need to be very clear about that. Back in the 60s, Barry Goldwater, Richard Nixon, they, they said to themselves, well, racism's ugly, but it actually works to create fear and stampede people. I want to win elections. Let me do this. But then generation after generation, elected Republican officials were confronted very often in the primaries by candidates who were willing to go even further, who were willing to be more extreme. And so you go from the silent majority to the Reagan Democrat. And then you go to Gingrich, who who's promotes culture war all the time. And then pretty soon it's the Tea Party. And that's not extreme enough. So then you get Trump. And that's not extreme enough. So then you get QAnon. QAnon has three big conspiracy theories. One, that government is controlled by Satan-worshipping pedophiles. Two, that patriots ought to take up arms to restore uh, uh uh, patriotic leadership, three, that a storm of biblical proportions will sweep away bad people in the society. 
one out of four Republicans currently believe all three of those lies. It's right, and and another fifty five percent of Republicans aren't willing to say clearly those are lies. We are seeing a radicalization of the base, and then in turn a radicalization of the elected officials, because again. Each election now, elected Republican officials have a choice to make, radicalize or resign. So you can see a figure like Ted Cruz or J.D. Vance. They're smart guys. They know this is a series of lies. And they said, well, I can tell the truth and say Joe Biden actually won in 2020, but then I'd lose. So I better (laughs) radicalize. Or you could see people like Jeff Flake saying, I'm not willing to radicalize. I got to resign. But the net result of that is we have a political party, the Republican Party, in which the vast majority of its elected officials are committed to anti-democratic lies. And one of them is the lie that massive fraud stole the election. The other and probably, and this is inseparable, but the, but the other and more dangerous anti-democratic lie is that an enormous swath of Americans don't deserve to be Americans, that black and brown people aren't truly equal, but are instead a threat to and a drag on society. And they don't say that plainly. They don't say that as clearly as I've just expressed it. But it's the point of all of their rhetoric when they attack Black Lives Matter as actually meaning somehow hatred of white people, when they attack critical race theory, even when they promote the lie of massive fraud in the election, undergirding that is a racial story. They bust in people from Milwaukee. They brought in illegals to vote, right? It's a racial story. We are now on the knife's edge of losing our democracy. What will lose us democracy is if people believe the lies that brown and black people are a threat to this country, a drag on it or undeserving, that we are somehow illegitimately stealing power from white folks. If people believe those lies, they will vote for a party that is now in the main prepared to sacrifice democracy. Mm. How do we protect democracy? And I think also more immediately, how do we protect our own families? How, How do we make sure that we have a government that works for working families, a government that's responsible about public health, a government that is proactive about climate change? We reject the lies. Right. And this is and, and, and what is the what are the one one of the main lies being told right now and that will be told repeatedly through the, the midterms? That critical race theory is coming to teach your children to hate. That's one of the major lies. And and is it good that we're debating critical race theory? We're not debating critical race theory. This is not a real conversation about critical race theory. We're debating. Who threatens us in this society? Mm. Is it really people of color and those asking for racial justice? Are we the biggest threat this society faces? Are we 
an existential threat on the level of Marxism, global communism? Or is the biggest threat we face from politicians backed by billionaires who stoke division and fear? That's the debate we're actually having. And if we can get people to see that that's what's really, that's the choice. Who actually threatens us? Is it people of color? Is it, you know, some some academic from Berkeley who's been talking about racial justice his whole career? Am I the biggest danger the society faces? Or frankly, is it somebody like Ted Cruz who's willing to repeat these lies so that he can keep his campaign donations flowing, who ends up at the policy level doing things that are good for the one-tenth of one percent, the petrochemical industry, and yet at the rhetorical level spends all his time telling us fear black and brown people. That's, that's, the, that's the real debate we're having. And upon that debate hangs the fate of our democracy, hangs the fate of all of our families. Mm, wow. That's, um, that's pretty heavy, but, but very important. And um, I, uh, I can't thank you enough, Ian, for, for coming on our program and, and, and helping educate myself and, and our audience on, on, just all things critical race theory related. I mean, I, I feel like I'm walking away with a lot to kind of just think about. And I, and I hope our, our audience does the same. And I hope our audience actually um, goes in our website. Like I said, I'll put the link to the Race Class Academy and checks it out um, for themselves. And, you know, and just use that to kind of engage other people and have conversations. And, and uh, yeah, thank you for everything that, that you brought to the, to the conversation. And it was, it was wonderful. Thank you, Will. Thank you so much for engaging. I really appreciate the conversation. All right. Thanks so much. And thank you, listeners. And we will uh, see you next week. All right.